And this is Dan. Together we pastor Hope Culture Church in Elgin, Illinois. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. We hope it encourages you and inspires you. Here's today's message. Well, good morning, church. Uh, I'm Pastor Dan. If we hadn't had the pleasure of meeting yet, I'd love to meet you after service. We're excited to be continuing this series, asking for a friend, diving into some of those questions we all have. And we're going to continue that in just a second. But I first want to just pause, talk about something so, so important, and that is this shirt, right? This shirt has gotten a lot of chatter this morning. The dream team they're setting up, most of them were just making fun of it, like said it looks like a bowling shirt. Or Stephen was like, what game are you going to referee after church? And that's just been the theme of the morning. Everybody's making fun of it. And then I posted it on Instagram, and one of my friends was like, that shirt looks like a barcode. And it's just like, I can't win. I mean, thank you, Seth. Seth, you said you liked it. I appreciate that. Me and you, we can hang out later. But we're, we're in a series called Asking for a Friend, where it's the idea of if we were to go to this diner and you were to ask me one of these questions, how would we respond? What kind of conversation would we have about it? And today is no small topic. We're talking about how do we reconcile a good, loving, and powerful God and the presence of evil in our world, right? Just a little small question again like last week, just something we can easily scratch off in the next five minutes or so. No, it is big. It's robust, but I'm excited about it, and we're going to go. It's going to get deep at times, so hopefully you had your coffee and you're not going to fall asleep during it, but we're also going to talk about what does this mean practically and how does it change the way we think, live, and pray, and, and some of those questions. So let's go ahead and pray together and ask God to speak through his word. God, we love you. We turn our attention towards you. God, would you speak to us? No matter where we land on this issue, if we agree, disagree, uh, God, we look to you as the author and perfecter of our faith, and we ask that you do what you want to do this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So many of you are familiar with the word theology. It is the study of God. Um, but maybe you're not uh, familiar with the word theodicy. Theodicy is the word that has to do with our understanding of God's providence, his protection and provision in light of suffering and evil. And so Christianity has a few different theodicies that people subscribe to, um, and we're going to look at a few of those in just a minute. After we look at them, I'm going to kind of tell you, yeah, this is where I lean. No matter where you, where you fall on the spectrum, you're welcome here. And then we're going to kind of talk about what does that look like practically? How do we filter that through a grid of suffering in everyday life? So theodicy, the idea of reconciling a good and perfect and powerful God with the existence of evil. There's three main camps. There are people outside of those, but we're just going to look at the main three today. And the first one is what many scholars call meticulous providence. Meticulous providence. This means that God is in all of the details, that there is a story, a tapestry that he has written out and um, is unfolding before us. He has a plan, a story, and he controls all those details. He either causes directly or gives permission with a purpose to everything that happens. Many phrases that are common in this understanding are, it's all for our good and God's glory. Many things, uh, there's a lot of this in Western Christianity. This is a very popular one. Uh, This is the best possible story and scenario to bring God glory and for our good. This, This views God as an author 
to history. And so all of these are biblical. All of these are found in the Bible. And we're going to talk about that and, and how they are a little bit different in each one. Uh, but this one, to give an illustration, would be, I'm going to use Disney movies a lot or animated movies just because that's, that's where my kids are at and that's what I'm thinking about a lot. So this would be like the person who wrote uh, The Lion King. There's the characters within The Lion King, and they're all doing what the script said because they're animated and written. They're doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. And so Simba will always choose to run away after his dad dies. No matter how many times that plays out, Simba's going to do that because that is what it was written he would do. That is kind of the view in an oversimplification of meticulous providence, that God is in the details. If you run that a thousand times, every time that is what's going to happen. So then people ask, is that fatalism? Does that mean everything's decided when we don't have free will? No, we still have free will in this view. It's just that there is nothing that has been written that would be outside of what we would already choose. Does that kind of make sense? There's going to be a point in this message where you're probably like, I'm super confused and I don't know what's happening. And that means you're probably getting it because that's just kind of how these work together. They just, they confuse us a little bit. And so this view has a very high view of God's sovereignty, and sovereignty is important. What you're going to see is that all three of the views we look at have a, a good view of sovereignty and free will, but they all define them differently. They all come to different conclusions about what that actually means. So this view has what many would call a very high view of sovereignty, in that sovereignty is God executing his will. That the plan and story he wrote is unfolding before us to maximize God's glory and the best possible scenario for us. I have a lot of friends who hold to this view. This is not the view that I subscribe to. This is the view of John Piper and Matt Chandler to give a few famous voices. And I really like them. I listen to their teaching. I read their books. Um, they're great, great scholars and pastors. Um, this has a high view of God's sovereignty. What happens is all of these have a problem. And we'll discuss uh, the problem with all of them. Uh, none of them are perfect. This one asks the question, if God is in all of the details, how is he not held responsible for those details. How is God not in the end still responsible for the suffering? And they do have an answer for that in this view. They talk about how there is an allowing of it and it is for the ultimate good and that if God in any way himself acts um, to provide an evil thing, it would be to fight a greater evil thing. Um, and so there is answers to some of those things, but that is the underlying question we're left with. How is God not held responsible? And that is one of the biggest reasons I don't personally hold to this view. Um, as I look at the whole of Scripture, I don't see that God is behind most of the suffering. There are times where we see God act and suffering can be the result, but I don't see him as behind most of it or orchestrating most of it. If we see and look at the life of Job, we see this is the view Job starts with. That early on in Job, he says, God gives and takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. That ends up becoming a Matt Redman song, and many of you who grew up in church have probably even sang it, depending on your background and what your pastor and church thought and taught related to this. You would sing, blessed be the name of the Lord, he gives and takes away. But then at some point in life, you experience something where God, in this view, took something away, and you're left with, well, how does that work? You're left with reconciling that, and there are good answers if this is the view you hold to that you can work through and, and come to that conclusion of. 
but you're still left wondering, is this God's fault? And you actually see Job go on this journey that he starts by saying, blessed be the name of the Lord, he gives and takes away. And then halfway through the book, he's like, God is not good. If this is what's happening, I'm frustrated with him. And then at the end of the book, God kind of pulls him aside and he, he sees God for who he is. And he's like, who am I to question God? God's ways are not my ways. And he comes to the conclusion that there is an amount of mystery to it. And all of these are left with a little bit of mystery. I have friends who subscribe to this view and I even walk with them through some of their suffering and some of them are in ministry and they say things quickly like God is in control and God is sovereign, which I believe and they believe. We just believe that means different things. And so for them, that just means God has got this because this is part of his plan. And I would say God has got this. It's not outside of his control. Sovereignty doesn't necessarily mean he's controlling every single detail. Because then you would have to go so far as to say, well, when that thing happened, that abuse took place, this sudden and tragic death, when this thing happened, it's part of God's plan. Which is what people in this view say. John Piper is not hiding that fact that he believes that. He's saying there is no death apart from God. If a natural disaster occurs, which regularly happens, he commonly writes an essay afterwards explaining this is the will of God, that we lost 230,000 people. But there are many others who are still in orthodoxy who would write back, and some of them have, and, and said, no, I don't believe this is the hand of God. We'll get more to that in a little bit. The second view is what is called free will providence. And so the first view, if you're maybe familiar with Calvinism, both four-point and five-point Calvinism would fit in there. Free will providence would be uh, Arminianism. And this is the idea that God has perfect knowledge of all events of history by which he makes his plan. So the first one is he makes the plan and he knows how it will unfold and it will unfold that way. The second one is he knows ahead of time everything that will happen and therefore his plan matches that. Again, Hopefully you drank your coffee. It's 10.30 in the morning, and we're really going for it. This is like a lot of Bible college smashed into 10 minutes of the beginning of my message. Don't worry. We will get out of these three views and, and talk more about it. All right, free will providence. They believe that rarely or occasionally God will interfere with the free will of his created beings that he already has made a plan and he has given us free will. So this, in the spectrum of high view of sovereignty, what some would say was a lower view of free will, our first option. Our second option is a high view of free will, a lower view of sovereignty from their perspective and vice versa. But they both would say, we hold to sovereignty and free will. It's a high value on free choice. The first one says, this is the best possible world for God's glory and for our goodness. The second one would hold and say, this is a broken world that things are not as they should be, and we don't always see God's will taking place. It's not that he's not in control. It's that he's not forcing that upon us. He's given us free will and the consequences of it. If the first one is like God authoring a script, the second one is saying he is a good king and we are in his kingdom, that he has all authority and he can do as he pleases, and sometimes that means he allows us to make our own choices and live with the consequences of them that he is legislating and pushing us towards his ultimate plan of redemption. All of these hold to the biblical story of, of redemption and restoration. And so this view would hold that he is getting us there by pushing us towards it as a good king, showing us the right way and offering us to make a choice to join him in it. 
they argue that you can't fully choose to love God on your own if it's already decided that you will. Both of these views view predestination as in the Bible, but they view what it means as different. Um, So this view would say, you know Shrek 2, when the fairy godmother shows up and is talking about how the guy has not fallen, or uh, Fiona has not fallen in love with the prince yet. And she's like, we can use this love potion and he will fall in love with the next person he kisses. This is what um, free will providence people would say about meticulous providence. They would say meticulous providence takes away our ability to choose God freely. Free, uh, meticulous providence would say, no, it doesn't, but that's part of the disagreement. This, this view is held by people like C.S. Lewis and Philip Yancey and Platinga and many other well-known uh, preachers and scholars, and it's, it's a common one. This is where Arminians are. And the last one I want to talk about briefly is active providence. This would be more in the middle. This is where I would hold to. Um, some people actually in the scholarly world call this Calminianism, which I think is ridiculous because I'm like, seriously, did you just like steal from Hollywood and give Calvin and Joseph Arminius like a Hollywood couple name and be like, this is our theological position? Like we got the worst name in my opinion, but this is what is called active providence. This is the view that God is at war with evil. Again, all these things are true. We believe God is the author. We believe he is the king. And we believe he is at war with evil. But to the extent that you emphasize those changes how you view his working and therefore our suffering. And we'll get to that in just a second. So God is at war in evil. He gives us free will and does intervene at times to combat evil, that he gives it parameters. He gives us partnership in ruling. This is the idea of Romans 12, that he overcomes evil with good and invites us to do the same. This says both and. To give a couple more theological terms, and then I'll be done defining stuff for you. The first view holds to monergism, which says all of it is God. And the second view is synergism, which says partnership. And the the third view says sometimes one and sometimes the other. And it's not a cop-out. Some people say that's a cop-out. It's actually our understanding of reading of Scripture is that sometimes God is drawing people to himself and sometimes we are partnering with God to see a difference made on earth. This is um, the idea of Our world is broken, kind of like the second view, and God is inviting us into restoration, but that he is actively involved. It's not as hands-off as the second view, where it's like, I've created free will, and I'm eventually going to make what I've decided happen through the cross, and then ultimately through Jesus' return. But in the meantime, I'm kind of hands-off, allowing free will. This view says he is allowing us to have free will and intervenes more often, but not as meticulously as the first view. Does that kind of make sense? Again, this is an oversimplification of three robust theological systems. And so this view would also say God is sovereign and define it as he is accountable to no one. Kind of like the second view. Psalm 115, 13 says, he does what he pleases. We'll get there. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Verse 3, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. This is my view of the sovereignty of God. He does what he wants. 
he sometimes intervenes and controls and steps in, and sometimes he leaves us to our own will and consequences. All of these views hold to some amount of mystery. Some of them will point to one verse, and some of them will point to another. A lot of them will come to the same verse and and interpret it three different ways because they've defined sovereignty, free will differently. They've also changed how they view the overarching story. So those are the three views. Any of those are biblical. If you hold to any of them, uh, you are welcome here. Even if you hold outside of them, we're glad you're here. And I can encourage you and we can dive into any of those three. Chances are you grew up in one of those three, so naturally you gravitate towards it. If you're newer to faith, you're kind of just presented as like, whoa, there's like more than one view. I want to talk a little bit about how I think the sliding scale isn't the best analogy. And this isn't my idea. This is, I've taken this from other professors, doctors, and theologians um, who say instead of thinking of a sliding scale of sovereignty and free will with like a dip in the middle, kind of where I would land, they said, what if we think about it as an interconnected web? What if we don't think of it as just a line, but as a circle with five different wills at play? Not all of them are equal. Obviously, God can step in and enforce his will at any moment. But at the same time, we don't see that God's will is always done. That's why Jesus prays, not my will, but yours be done. He wouldn't pray that if he already knows God's will will be done. And he wouldn't pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So holding to a web view allows us to be in the middle and say, God can intervene in any way, but we also see all of these other things at work. So those five wills, really quick. God's, ours, other people's, the spiritual beings, which we'll get to, and natural chaos. So let's talk about those. The first one is God's. God has a will. We all know this. None of these three views disagree with that. They all just disagree with the amount that it is enforced here on earth. The amount that we see it. Even the first view, meticulous providence, would say, yes, we are seeing God's will play out, but not his, that's his decreed will, not his ultimate will. And they would separate those as two different things, saying there's still an aspect of we don't see the fullness of what God desires. We see his best plan based on the brokenness, but we aren't seeing it. And then the other ones would say, well, we're not even seeing God's full will. Like, we don't see God's will in the Holocaust, and we don't see God's will in, in abuse, and we don't see God's will in, in X, Y, and Z. But we do see that God has a will, that he has an intended desire. We see in the beginning he created things and said they were good, and through his word we see what he desires and asks of us to step into as followers of Jesus. God has a will, like I said earlier, to view him as a king and an author and also the captain of a mutinous ship. That is kind of the third view, is that he is leading us to where we're going and we have freedom within bounds that uh, Satan has led a mutiny on God's ship of history and that we have freedom on side of the ship but not outside of it, you know, somewhere in between the first and second view. Um, so God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. God has a will. We have a will. You have free will to do what you would like to do, to make decisions, and there are natural consequences to those decisions. Many of you have experienced this. I experienced this on Friday. On Friday, I was playing at the park with my kids, and what happens when I play at the park is I forget how old I am, 
and I act like an eight-year-old with them. And so we're playing tag, and I'm going all out because I will not lose to my kids in tag until I have to. And so I'm running up the stairs of the fort at the park, and there's the entryway, which is not designed for somebody my age and size. It is designed for a kid. And so I duck, but I do not duck low enough. And I hit the top of my head. Self-diagnosed, I do have a mild concussion. I have a headache that I've had since Friday with dizziness and, and you know, all of the other things that go with a mild concussion. Anyways, I would say that was amount of suffering and evil in the world was a result of me. That was not God. That was not Satan. That was not somebody else. That was something I did that resulted in my own suffering. That was obviously a silly example, but we have a will and there are consequences to it. James talks about being led away by our own desires. And that when we do that, that's what temptation is. We give in to sin and sin has this natural progression that leads to death. And this idea that we can follow our own natural desires, but when we're born again, when we give our life to Christ, we're given new desires and we're given the opportunity to step into those as well through the power of the Holy Spirit. So God has a will. We have a will. Other people have a will. We are affected by the decisions of the people around us. There's no getting out of that. If somebody has done something to you, positive or negative, it makes a difference in your life. And so if we think about suffering, sometimes we suffer because of the decision and desire of somebody else. It's a choice that they made, them acting out on their own free will. The next one is spiritual beings. The Bible has a lot of names for these. Angels, principalities, demons, Satan, rulers of the air. Some are good. Many of them are bad. You know, like Satan and the demonic are real and bad and against us. We know, this is 1 John 5.19. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. This is written by John. This is written after Jesus' death and resurrection acknowledging that in the world, there are other spirits at play. I mean, we see this in other things. We're going to study Ephesians 6 as a church over the summer and talk about spiritual warfare, that there are real elements at play. Do they control everything? No. I feel like in the church, we love to swing really far on stuff, almost everything. We want to just take a strong stance. So some people are like, everything is the devil's fault. They're blaming the interaction they had with their spouse where they fought. They're like, that was the devil. And I'm like, no, you were just being a jerk. And then other people are like, no, you know, theoretically, yes, but like everything is just us. It's just natural, et cetera, et cetera. Those are both unhealthy views. Um, To think that Satan is behind everything will cause you not to take responsibility for very much. It'll cause you to blame things that you should take ownership for and apologize to somebody else. This happens in relationship. If somebody is falling into that camp where they think Satan is behind everything, they will have a disagreement with you or a misunderstanding with you and they'll just chalk it up to that was the devil. But then there's no real reconciliation. There's no saying I'm sorry. Even if the devil was behind it, you can still come and have ownership to it. Other people, they don't acknowledge that, that there is spiritual an enemy in our life. And, and that's a tragic mistake to make. To think that there is not somebody out prowling like a lion looking for whom to devour, to use New Testament language. To say that there is somebody who is an enemy of your soul actively trying to take you down and out from following Jesus. 
There are spiritual beings at play. God also has angels, the angelic realm. That is real. We'll, we'll do some more teaching on some of those things in the future. But I want to just recap. God has a will. We have a will. Other people have a will. And spiritual beings have a will. And the last thing I wanted to mention is that I believe in natural chaos. Natural chaos um, is defined differently by different people. Theologically, this is called natural evil. And it's, it's the concept that some things just happen because our world is broken. So this is the idea that God might be behind a natural disaster, or Satan might be behind a natural disaster. We might have caused a natural disaster by not taking care of our environment. But also maybe it's just a natural disaster. Maybe it's one of the things one time, and it's one of the other things another time. That sometimes things just happen. Sometimes things are chaotic, that in our world there is brokenness. And because of that, we experience, and experience that sometimes what seems randomly. In a non-theological way, to not say natural evil, this is just weird stuff happens sometimes. And it causes suffering. It causes pain in our life. When we acknowledge that there are all five of these biblically, that we see them at play, it's hard to, to say Everything is just in our own hands and God's kind of like set it all in motion and, and we're, we're just going from there. Or to say God is controlling every single thing that, that these other things don't have a real ability to influence them. I think we're left with this idea that God can and does intervene. That he hardens Pharaoh's heart. That he responds to disobedience in Israel. That there is an active participation of what God is doing that changes history but also that there are other times where these other wills are at play and God allows it to happen. That we see the results of those things and the suffering that ensues because of them. So we started very heady, three different views. We got a little bit more practical, five wills. Let's bring it down a whole nother level of practicality and just give an example. For example, you lost your job. You lost your job. You plug that into the grid and you say, Whose fault was that? Well, maybe it was God's. Maybe God did have something else planned for you. Maybe, you know, there was the, the fact that you were not going to leave that job and he had a better thing for you. And because you left it, you found your dream job two weeks later. Praise God. So exciting. Some of you have heard stories like that. Um, but others of us, we've heard stories where somebody lost their job. Two weeks later, they don't have a job. Two months later, they don't have a job. Eighteen months later, they're still looking for a job. So it's hard to always just be like, well, God did it, and it was best for me. What happens is we like or grew up around meticulous providence, and so we think everything happens for a reason. And I agree, most things happen for a reason, but we can't just assume that reason was God. And there is a difference between the idea that God works things out and uses them for good and that he caused them. That is not the same thing. God can redeem something that he did not cause. And I think he does that often. That's his goodness. That's his grace in his life. That's one of the, the amazing things about being a follower of Jesus is that we experience evil and suffering and we believe, God, you can do something with this. Even if you didn't cause this, even if this is a result of my own sinfulness and brokenness, you can still do something with it. It gives us hope. So your job, you could have lost it because of God. Maybe not. You could have lost it because of you. Maybe you were spending more time on Instagram than doing your job. 
That would be a reason to lose your job because of you. You made a bad choice. Maybe it wasn't you. Maybe it was somebody else. Maybe you had a coworker that just hates you and they're out to get you and they're lying to your boss about you because they want your job. Maybe it was somebody else's fault that you lost your job. Maybe it was the devil. Maybe you were making too much of a spiritual impact and he was just like, we can't have you in this environment anymore. You're out. Maybe it was just natural chaos. Maybe the economy was down and they cut a bunch of people and it wasn't God, it wasn't you, it wasn't somebody else, it wasn't the devil. Maybe you just lost your job. I don't know which of the five it was in that scenario, but do you see how it could be many of them? There's this idea that we want it to be so clean and simple and sometimes we can have discernment and say, God, what was it? And we can walk away and say, I have a confidence, I have a peace in my spirit that this really was from God or I know that this was the enemy or I did this and it was a result of myself or some combination. I think we see in scripture A lot of times it's not as simple as just one of these things. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's a combination of them. Let's flip over as an example to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 6 through 9. Paul is saying, even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But if I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. See that sentence? In order to keep me from being conceited. So first of all, he has a role to play in it. There was some form of pride that was growing within Paul. I was given a thorn in the flesh. He doesn't say who it's from, but it's kind of implied that it's from God. And then he says, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And you would say, well, was it from God? Did God allow that messenger to do that? Or was that Satan because it's a messenger of Satan tormenting him? Or was it his own fault because he had this pride issue that wasn't dealt with? If you asked me, I would say yes. Probably all three of those, because that's what scripture says. And so he goes to God, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest in me. Paul's like, hey, this thing, I prayed about it. It's still not gone. It was probably a result of all three of these things, but to God be the glory nonetheless. We see this in Genesis with the brothers. The brothers throw Joseph into prison, and then later, many chapters later, in chapter 50, he's like, you guys meant it for evil, but God used it to accomplish good. God intended it for good. This was part of God's plan and will, even though you guys had a plan and will of getting rid of me. It was more than one thing at once. I think oftentimes it is a hybrid of that circle, that there are more than one will at play, And sometimes it's easy to discern and say it was these two. Other times it's left unclear. But I think the beauty of holding to this view of suffering and saying, hey, it is a result of many things, is that it allows us to go into the face and pain and whatever happened and not just see God behind it. Because we see what happens when Job goes on that journey. And I've seen that journey with many people 
where it's the pain and suffering is to a level that they can't reconcile with God being the one solely orchestrating it. So they're like, if that was God, then I can't believe he's good. I, or I can't believe he's powerful. One of the two has to go because otherwise, why would I be facing this? But what's helpful, and it doesn't solve all the problems of pain and suffering, but what is helpful to say when you look at that, you might actually see the face of God's enemy. That could very well be Satan. It could very well be the brokenness of our world. It could very well be times where people chose to partner with Satan rather than partner with God. I mean, that seems to be the narrative of the New Testament is put on one set of clothes or the other, choose who you're going to follow. You're a slave to one or you're a slave to other. There is no middle. And we as humans, ourselves and others, when we choose to not do things God's way, there's natural results of that, sometimes that we can't see or anticipate. So to be able to walk through suffering and, and say, God, I believe that you're near to me. Psalms, in the Psalms, it says that God is near to the brokenhearted and say, God, I believe you're near to me and I, I don't think you caused this, but I do believe you can use it. That you can still have the benefit of meticulous providence and say, God, you can use this for good. You can use this for my formation but it doesn't mean that you did it to me. I think that's the healthiest, and I think it is biblical, the way to walk through pain and suffering. I was talking to my counselor at one point, and he brought up grief, and we were, we were talking through that. And he, we talk shorthand sometimes about some stuff because he's a Christian, and he knows I'm a pastor. And he's like, I love talking to Christians about and, uh, uh, pain and suffering. He's because they have hope. He's like, but I've also seen sometimes they have hope, but then they also underneath have some anger. And he goes, are you angry? And I'm like, no. And he's like, do you want to talk about that more? I'm like, no. Because I know God didn't do that. I'm not upset because I don't think God did that to me. That when we have a healthy view and truly believe God is all-powerful, but he's relegated some of that power and authority to us as created beings and to the spiritual world as created beings that we can see, hey, God is all-powerful and he is all-good, but a lot of suffering is a result of us and the devil. And with that, I can live with that. I can live with knowing God is with me, that he will use it, that he will teach me through it, but that I don't have to say he did it to me. I think that's beautiful. Romans 8 says, uh, it has a long section that if you're currently walking through pain and suffering, it might be helpful for you to read. And what's fun is all three of these views can read this passage and come to different conclusions about it, but there's a lot that we agree on. And it's Paul saying, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. He's like, what I'm currently going through, what you are going through is nothing compared to what's in store for us in the future. And I love this because when you have the view that God is fighting against evil, and that is the overall theme of Scripture, you have this hope. And all of us have that hope. No matter which view you ascribe to, you're like, at some point God's going to make this right. And so to back up and say really quick, what is the story of Scripture? It's that God created a perfect world and that there was peace, shalom, things as it should be. 
But there was also the snake in the garden that, that Satan had already fallen. And at some point, Adam and Eve decided to partner with the rebellion of the enemy rather than with God's intended purpose. That they believed the snake. They believed the serpent. They believed Satan. And they thought, maybe we should eat from that one tree God said not to touch. They freely chose that. And in that moment, sin entered the world and the world was never as it should be again. There was brokenness. There was death. Things weren't as they should be. But even in that moment, God promised he was going to make things right. There's a prophetic statement in Genesis 3 about the, the, the head of the certain serpent being crushed. And, and we know prophetically that that's Jesus coming. And the Old Testament, we see this battle of God fighting evil and showing his protection to Israel. And then when they live in active disobedience, he takes his hands off and things get really bad. And then he intervenes again and rescues them when they need it over and over until Jesus comes and we see the culmination, the climax of the story, but not the end of the story. It's like in World War II, that was D-Day, and things were decided. We know we're on the winning team, that it's been, sin and, and shame and evil have been defeated on the cross, but we're still seeing the rest of the battle play out, and that we're invited to be part of that story. That we're invited, like Romans 12, overcome evil with good. That we're invited to, to be kingdom partners with God, that he is our king, but that we're, we're supposed to be seeing the kingdom play out like Jesus was preaching. The kingdom of God is near. It's both now and not yet, that we haven't fully realized it, but that when we do things God's way and let him use us and work through us, we see flourishing because of it. But we also see brokenness and evil still all around us. And the reality is, is we would like to think we're all good, but we still do some of both. That in God's book we're counted as righteous, but we still see that even as the result of our own actions, there's suffering in the world. And Paul's like, don't forget the big story. He's like, what you're currently going through is temporary. At some point, God will make it right. He says, even creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. There's something about the brokenness of everything that is waiting for restoration. The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the evil will of the one who subjected it in hope, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. He talks more about this groaning and this desire for things to be made right and this hope that we have but that we can't see yet. He talks about the Spirit in our weakness interceding for us. And he goes on to the famous verse, verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Let's take just a, a minute at this verse and then we'll wrap up. But notice that it doesn't say he works all things for good. It says that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That the good he's working is on our behalf and for us if we're called by him. Then, depending on which view you hold to, the second half of the verse, who've been called according to his purpose, would define that differently. What is his purpose? His purpose is his decreed will, every single detail. That's what the first view would hold. The second view is his purpose is that we would choose him, that we would see reconciliation in our relationship with him. 
The third view, the, the in-between one would say his, his will is to defeat the enemy and see the restoration of all things. So for those of us who've been called, he's working to that end no matter what. He then goes on to talk about more predestination, and it's fun to dive into what that means and talk about the different views. And he ends the chapter, though, by saying we're more than conquerors. If God is for us, who can be against us? That we know that if we are on God's team, we are on the winning side, and that he is for our good and for his glory, and we can trust him in the middle of all of it. We started by asking the question, why is there evil, pain, and suffering with a good and loving and perfect God? And although we talked about some of the different reasons why, I kind of want to shift the question at the end. Because the Bible doesn't clearly say why. Although everything we talked about today is from the scripture and gives us reason why, it doesn't fully answer the question. The question the Bible actually answers is what? What is God doing about it? It's that he sent himself as the rescue plan to the brokenness of our world, and that one day all things will be made right. What does that mean for us? A, receive that rescue plan, step into salvation through Christ alone, and then B, once you've stepped into that, we're called to partner with him, to pray as Jesus prayed, not my will, but your be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and to actively participate in good and flourishing overcoming evil. God, we turn our attention to you knowing that you are sovereign, you are in control, and you've given us free will. God, I pray that as we wrestle through these questions, we would hold to the truth no matter what other things are, are in the way of that, God, that we would truly believe you are good, that as your word says, you are good, you are slow to anger and abounding in love, God, that we can trust you. Would we know deep inside that you are good? Would we also know that you are powerful? Would we know that you can and you do anything that you please? That you are king of kings. And God, in our present suffering, would we not lose sight that you are in the process of making everything right again? That you are fighting against evil and that we have the opportunity to join you. To step into participating in the kingdom activities of overcoming evil with good. We love you and we trust you, God. Would your spirit speak and minister to us? In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear about what God is doing in your life. To share your story or a prayer request, simply hit contact on our website. You can also support the ministry of Hope Culture Church by visiting hopeculturechurch.com give. We hope you have a great week.